read those words, those wonderful words of the Apostle Paul, we see again just how gratitude and thankfulness to you was just at the very center of who he was. He knew you through Jesus. He knew what you'd done for him in Jesus. And he just couldn't stop praising you. Father, may that be true in our lives, that in every way that we can in our lives, either through our offering, in our service, in our day-by-day living, in whatever way, may we be a people who in every way show that we are thankful to our good, good Father. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the most important thing in your life right now? Now, that's a a big question, isn't it? And I I wonder what answers people out there in the the world around us would give to that question. They, They probably know what they should say, and that's things like their relationships, their family. But are people in our world today, are they more concerned about things like their image? about projecting themselves in a way that that makes others think well of them? Are they more concerned about pleasure, about making sure that they get their share of the good things of life, of the best, the most excited experiences this world has to offer? Well, you know, if you you look at the media, all the different popular platforms, and it would seem that this is the case for so many, that these are the most important things. And that is so sad. It's just another expression, symptom of the mess that we are in today as a society. But what got me onto thinking about this, though, was studying this passage in Ephesians during this week. I'm being reminded by this once again, what was most important in the life of the Apostle Paul. And by extension, what should be important today for the people of God? Now, of course, we know that that what was of first importance for Paul was his relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then his call from God to build and to care for this, this newly emerging church. However, what's revealed in in these verses we're looking at tonight is that as Paul has reflected in the earlier verses on this relationship, on the nature of this relationship, and as he's continually related this to the church at Ephesus, then what was important for Paul at this point was to pray for this church, to give thanks for them, and then to pray for this church. This was his first instinct. This is what was all important to him. And it got me thinking, and let me just share this with you before we begin to open this passage up tonight. Would that be my first instinct? Would that be our first instinct? Well, how do we assess that? Well, I suppose the only real barometer that we've got, the only real objective measure that we have of our prayer life has to be the church prayer meeting. Now, 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 let me just say here that I know there's a lot more to prayer in the life of the church than the prayer meeting. And I also know that nowhere does the Bible command us to have a weekly prayer meeting. Indeed, that when you look at church prayer meetings in the New Testament, that these invariably were special events where the church was called together 
usually in times of crisis. So there was a, a real focus and a real energy to these meetings. But you see, with a, a regular prayer meeting, well, we've got to fight against the tendency for things to become routine, humdrum, and too inwardly focused. You know, just looking at ourselves, focusing all the time on our needs. And that's something we have tried to guard against in our prayer meeting over the last few years. We have been focused on prayer. We've tried to be more outward looking. We've tried to include an element of thanksgiving at time in our prayer. And while I have to admit that I am biased, I do feel that we have had over these years some great meetings. I've left some of these meetings feeling blessed by a sense of God's presence and encouraged and challenged by the prayers of God's people. But you know, I do continue to be a little bit concerned about the numbers that attend and by the age profile of those do. I'm one of the young ones. That by and large, this church, at least on the evidence of the prayer meeting, is being carried by those aged 60 and above. Now, they're doing a great job. But is that the way things should be? I mean, should we have a prayer meeting? Do we need a prayer meeting? I want to be clear. My answer is yes. Because although we're not directly commanded to have a weekly meeting for prayer, yeah, I can't see this as being something that displeases God. And I can't imagine Paul telling us to stop having a prayer meeting. I can't imagine him telling us to make sure we keep the right focus in prayer. I can't imagine him saying, you know, to to make sure that it doesn't become just routine, just an empty ritual. But a prayer meeting... From the right heart, with the right focus, I cannot see that as being anything but something that God and Paul would be delighted in. So why is it that people today, as we look at the evidence, don't seem to see prayer as being as important as Paul did? Why is it that numbers have declined over the last 30 years in most churches in prayer meetings. Now, for quite a while, I've pondered on this, and it's, it's concerned me, and I've wondered, has this got anything to do with what I've taught, or maybe with a lack of something in what I've taught? And it could be, I'm still thinking, but I haven't been able to put my finger on anything just yet. Perhaps I could have put a bit more of a, an emphasis and stress on the prayer meeting, but you see, I, I really, I want people to gather to pray because they want to be there. Because they feel they should be there. I don't want people to go because someone like me has made them feel guilty. Because they've been emotionally manipulated. But you know, increasingly, I'm coming to the conclusion that what's going on in this area, and also probably a number of other areas, that this isn't primarily about what the church has taught or what the church hasn't taught. Rather... This is an example of the way that Christians, including myself, that the church have been influenced and taken captive by this world and by its philosophies. For you see, the outlook in general in our society today, the outlook on life is do what you feel. Be what you want. Make sure 
that you're as happy as you possibly can be. Make sure that your life is filled with as much pleasure as you can possibly fit in. And at the same time, things like discipline, things like commitment, like doing what you should rather than what you want, these are increasingly foreign concepts in our society. So when it's a choice of getting up out of your cozy chair, leaving behind your favorite TV program and your family for one night to go down to a church hall, to get down to the work of prayer, for though we do have great times and great moments, yet a lot of prayer, we have to be honest, is hard work. And it is because it goes against that remaining fleshly human nature. And the evil one certainly doesn't make it easy. So not meeting to prayer to pray is always the easier option. How do we respond to this though? I think there are only two possibilities. We keep on going as we are, and you don't have to look too far in the future to see where that's going to get us, or we can face up to the situation individually and as a church. And we can ask God for His strength and His help, and we can begin to make important, to put first, to make our first priority the things which Paul made important and that God would have us make important, which I believe surely must include praying for and praying with God's people. Let's move on to actually look at the content of this prayer. Beginning first with the question, who does Paul pray for? Now, you might want to respond to here that, you know, that's a, a totally unnecessary question because, as it clearly says, and this has already been mentioned tonight, Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus and probably for the, the other churches in that area. But you see, I want to look at that question, who, in a bit more depth, in the sense of what was it about this group of Christians that prompted Paul to pray for them? Well, it's actually there in verse 15 and 16, where he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. It was then the faith and the love of these Christians that inspired Paul to give thanks for them and then to pray for them. Now, the way that this is put, the way that this is expressed by Paul here, the, the words and languages he uses, makes it clear that the, the faith that he's talking about, that this isn't something, this isn't simply about something like a, a faith that somebody might possess in the sense of a kind of a head knowledge about Jesus that goes no further than that. Rather, this is an active faith that Paul's talking about. This is a faith that shows itself in a transformed life. This is a faith that shows itself in transformed values, transformed priorities, in a radically different attitude towards people and towards life in general. But when someone maybe seems to believe the right doctrine and sing the right hymns, maybe say the right things, 
but where there's little or no life transformation. Where the life that is lived then, the attitudes, the values that are demonstrated by someone are little better than that of the world around us. And you see, if that is a faith at all, which at least has to be questioned, because true faith is about belief, but it's also about much more than that. It's not just about the mind. It's about the heart, the spirit. It's about our whole inner being. And it should. It must lead to life transformation. And if there is little sign of that, then we might possibly have a faith. But it's at best a very poor faith, and certainly not one that would lead Paul to give thanks, as he does here for the faith of the Ephesians. But Paul doesn't only give thanks for their faith, he also gives thanks for their love. And here as he does so, he uses that unique New Testament word that's special and reserved for the love of God. He uses the word Agape. Now you see, usually and, and, and rightly, this is defined by, by people like me as being a, a love for the unworthy, a love for the ungrateful and the undeserving. But I came across some other descriptions of this love this week that, that add a little bit that I think it's worth sharing with you. That this love has the idea of that which always seeks to give rather than to possess is always seeking the highest good or the will of God in the one loved. And then this goes on. This love that seeks the highest good is directed towards all, not towards some who may be more lovable. Now, have you got that? The great distinctive of Christian love of the kind of love that Paul here feels moved to give thanks to God for, isn't that it loves people who are lovable, people who you like and are drawn to and find easy to love. Anybody can do that. That's not special. No, the distinctive of Christian love, the love that's seen in those whose lives are truly yielded to God and so are empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God, is that this love, enables us to love. That is to, to open our lives to, to do the, the best that we possibly can for. Those who naturally we wouldn't feel drawn to. Those who naturally we don't find likable, never mind lovable. But these are the two qualities that Paul sees in the Ephesians that move him to give thanks for them. And to pray for them. But you can see the, the connection, can't you, between these two. That true faith leads to a transformed life. And that the defining distinctive that marks out a transformed life is love. These two qualities, if you like, are the true Christian faith boiled down to its very basic essentials. Faith and love. Which is why that, that it's not just here, it's not only here, but rather again and again in the New Testament, Paul picks these two characteristics out as the baseline marks of the true Christian. 
Places like 1 Corinthians 13.3, Galatians 5.6, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, just examples out of many. But that's who Paul prays for. That's what prompts him and moves him to pray. The faith and the love he sees in these Ephesian believers. But what does he pray for? For them. What does he seek God for them in this prayer? Well, let me just say it now. Two words. Wisdom and then revelation. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. All right, so the the spirit of wisdom and revelation then refers to the Holy Spirit. Praying that the Holy Spirit will come to these believers in a special and in a specific way. Giving them wisdom, spiritual understanding, and revelation. Spiritual insight into God, into the ways that God works, into how he, he blesses and encourages. With the end in mind being, as he prays this, that they might know him better. That's the end result. Now, it's interesting that this is what Paul prays for these Christians. Knowing as he does so, that they've already suffered severe persecution and that there may well be far worse on the horizon. But notice, he doesn't pray that they'll be saved from this. He doesn't pray that God will protect them and and ensure that their lives, no matter what's going on around, will be nice and happy and comfortable and trouble-free. He doesn't pray that because Paul knows that in this world that we live in, though the victory is won, yet still the battle goes on between God and the evil one. And that so God's people will suffer as they are caught up in this battle. That's inevitable. So what Paul prays here is that no matter what's going on, around them, no matter what they are experiencing in their lives. That as God's people keep on going on, living the life that he's called them to, that transformed life of faith and love, he prays that God by his Spirit will in the midst of this give them the spiritual understanding and the spiritual insight that will enable them through it all to come to know him better. That is through this, to grow closer to him, to develop a deeper relationship with him. Now, we need to be clear here, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for things like healing and protection, blessing, etc. for God's people. I'm not saying that's wrong elsewhere in the Bible. Paul and others do exactly that. But what I would say is that I believe Paul's first priority for our lives, the first thing that he would pray for, for us and for our church, and what he would then have us pray first for one another, is that whatever is happening in our life, whether life is good or bad, that we pray that through this, 
we might grow in our spiritual insight and understanding. And so, by growing, that we might grow to know him better. And that by doing so, we might then more effectively bring glory to him through our lives. But you know, this brings to mind for me a personal family story that was told as an illustration that at a conference that I was at by a very well-known and very gifted American Bible teacher. Now, I'm sure I've got the basics of this story right, but I can't be sure and certain of every detail. So I, I won't mention his name because I don't want to misquote him. But it was a, about a time when he was away as he regularly is from home on a preaching tour Well, at the same time, a very prominent member of his home church was very, very seriously ill. And the church held a series of prayer meetings to pray that this lady might be healed and restored. At one of these prayer meetings, his wife prayed along the lines that if it wasn't God's will to heal this woman, that she would know him to be especially close to her. And that she might be enabled to glorify him in her death, as she had done through her life. Now the amens weren't quite so loud after her prayer. And over the next few days, she got a number of messages by a variety of means that let her know that her prayer really hadn't been appreciated by everybody. That some had seen this as a terrible thing to pray That this was a defeatist prayer, a prayer that showed a lack of faith, that rather she should be praying that God might demonstrate his victory in Christ by healing this lady. Now, let me be clear before I go on. I don't agree with that. I'm all for healing, for praying for healing. I am. But healing takes a miracle. And miracles, by definition, are rare. That's why they're called miracles and not ordinaries or something of that kind. So is it wrong then, alongside maybe prayers for healing, to pray that God will draw near to the person suffering, that he will make himself known to them in a special way, and that he might use their experience to reveal his glory? That by his power, he may enable them in their experience to live in such a way as to reflect his glory. Is it wrong to pray that kind of prayer? Is it wrong after praying through maybe a long period of illness with someone? Is it wrong to arrive at the end at that kind of prayer? Is it for, you know, let's face it, unless Christ returns beforehand... We are all going to die. That's a fact. Is it a tragedy for a Christian to die and to go to be with Jesus? Is that a tragedy? It's a great sadness for us when we lose someone. But is it a tragedy? Is it a failure when that happens? When they go to glory? Surely We can bring glory to God and we can demonstrate the victory of Christ's resurrection and his life in the way that we deal with death as well as in those times when God blesses with a miracle. Well, we're going to finish now by looking finally at at what are our privileges. 
For you see, here Paul goes on to talk of the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Now, what this is laying out for us is, I believe, the impact of the spirit of wisdom revelation being given to us, the impact of that from a human perspective. That suddenly we see, spiritually, primarily, but also intellectually. That is, suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and gives us a new perspective on life. We see things in a different way. We grasp the spiritually the spiritual reality of what's going on in a way that previously we were unable to. And what then Paul goes on to pray for them is that this will lead to them grasping more firmly the privileges that become ours as Christians through faith in Christ. Now, I've only got time to look at two of these uh, just now because the third takes us into areas that will take at least a sermon to begin to look at. So just two. It's in verse 18, though, that Paul shares these first two privileges that he prays God's people will be granted the spiritual perception to see more clearly and so because of that to live in the joy that this understanding brings. Here's verse 18. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The first privilege then that Paul prays that we might see more clearly, grasp more firmly, is our hope. The hope that we were called into through faith. In Jesus Christ. So what is our hope? And what is our hope based on? It's based on Christ's death and resurrection. It's based on his victory over sin and over death and all the powers of evil. And on the fact that God then has called us through faith in this Christ to share in his victory. To share in his resurrection life. So again you see it goes back For the Christian, death is not the end. For we know we go to be with God. We know that we go to know in full the life that in this life we have known in part. And we know that at Christ's resurrection we too will rise. That death is not the end. That the grave cannot hold us. This is our hope. And this hope isn't some kind of Wishful thinking isn't because it's based on what Christ has done. It's based on the truth of what he has done. And it's also based on the truth of what God is doing in our lives. But as Paul says in another of his letters in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And then he goes on, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, the the experience that faith brings now to our hearts leads to hope, sure and certain hope of the glory of God that is to come. And believe me, at least this is my opinion, 
There is nothing that this world today needs more than the hope that Christians, through Christ, have to offer. Just an example of where I see this. You know, more and more people now are opting for humanist funeral ceremonies. And I've been to three of these. I think it's three. And, you know, behind all the nice words that are said and the happy memories that are shared, these ceremonies are devastatingly empty and hopeless. If you actually examine what's said, nothing of real substance is said. There is no hope given because there can be no hope without Christ. And it really is all just a picture of where at present we are as a society. There is a lack of substance, a lack of deep thinking, and a total lack of any kind of hope in our world. Well, I listened on on Friday morning to a, a news report that was on that day on the G20 summit. And the reporter said that the world leaders gathering have a sense that the world is spinning out of control. They have no idea where we are heading. Well, listen, if they've got no idea, what chance has the average man or woman got? This is a world starving today for lack of hope. So I think we have to join with Paul in praying that God will give us a deeper and clearer and more meaningful understanding of the hope that is ours in Christ, that we might then be able to share and and to live out more effectively before this world. The only hope there really is for mankind. Jesus Christ. The hope of the world. The other privilege that Paul here prays God's people will be led into a deeper, richer understanding and experience of is of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's there's quite a bit of debate here as to, to whether this is referring to God's inheritance. That is, that Christians are his inheritance, that we are the riches, that we are the treasure that he rejoices in, and certainly in the Old Testament, God's people are seen in that kind of way. For example, Psalm 28, 9, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Or alternatively, whether this is a reference to our inheritance in the Lord, to the riches of his blessings in Christ that we are given, that we know now in this life in part, but that when we go to go with him, then we will know in all their glorious fullness. Now, it is actually almost impossible to be dogmatic about which of the two here Paul is referring to. But as Sinclair Ferguson, as he suggests, perhaps we don't need to, perhaps we're not even intended to make a choice. For as he says, since God's inheritance in us and our inheritance in him are really two sides of the same coin, Either interpretation implies the other. Now you see, that that being the case, and as we looked at an earlier sermon in Ephesians, our inheritance in, in Christ, in the many ways that God has and God will bless us in Christ, then let me just for a moment reflect on what the Bible tells us about the fact that we are God's inheritance. That we are His treasured possession. 
Now just think about that. Out of all his creation, set in the context of the, the infinity of space, that out of all of this, you, we, are what is most precious to God. Of course, we all have our shortcomings, our weaknesses, and our sinful imperfections, and how the devil loves to show these, throw these, sorry, into our face. But remember, despite all of that, because God made us to love us, because he chooses to love us, and because he sent Jesus to die for us, that he could love us as fully as he wants to, Because of who God is then. Not because of who or what we are. Because of this. We are God's treasured possession. We are the riches of his inheritance. And here Paul prays for the Ephesians. But also he prays for us that God by his spirit might give us a deeper, clearer understanding and experience of this incredible privilege. And you know, how we need to hear this. How we need to to live this out. In a world that today is crippled by a low sense of worth, or by people who treat others as if they have got no worth. Our lives should be, our lives need to be, a living declaration to the world around us that we are God's treasure. Not because of who we or they are, but because of who God is. And that this God longs for us. Longs for every man and every woman to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. That he might share that greatness of his love with us. That's Paul's prayer for us. May also be our prayer for one another. Let's pray now. Father, we just want to thank you for that amazing thought that each person here tonight who knows you through Jesus Christ, each person is your treasure. They're your prized possession. Each one of us is like the most rare and beautiful jewel in all eternity to you. That's how you see us. That's how much you love us. And Lord, you want us to know that love. And you want us to live that love out. Father, help us to resist the attacks of the evil one. He always tries to pull God's people down. He always tries to, to make us feel that we've let God down and that God cannot really love us. Lord, that is a lie. Each person here who's repentant in heart, who wants to live in faith, who wants to live a life of faith and of love, Each person here is precious to you. May we know that tonight in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.